As we come now before God's Word, you can turn in your Bibles to Mark in chapter 11. We'll be in Mark in the beginning of chapter 11. And as you turn there, would you please pray with me? Our God, we know that you are a faithful God. And as we come now before your word, would you help us to be changed by you? Make us, we pray, a faithful people, a people who really follows you, a people who really finds rest in you. Lord, we need your help for this. By your spirit, would you enlighten our minds and hearts to really see what is true of you? Help us now, we pray, in the name of Jesus, we ask. Amen. This is Mark. In chapter 11, we'll read the first 11 verses here, starting in verse 1. Now, when they, the they there is Jesus and his disciples, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you'll find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. And if anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt, tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they, they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they'd cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. This is God's word. So just as a reminder to us, this is a strange place I know to be. Normally we hear texts like this around Easter time, triumphal entry, palm branches, and all of that. But we're reading through the book of Mark, and so here's where we are this Sunday morning. And this has been a long journey, many months. The first eight chapters of Mark's gospel, Jesus has really been healing and displaying his power over death and spirits really exercising his authority, showing that he has the power to do what he needs to do. And then in chapter 8, toward the end, there's a shift in which Jesus then begins to speak about his own death and suffering that will come. And he says that this is going to happen in Jerusalem. And here we are. Jesus is now coming into Jerusalem. He had determined, he was determined, he had set his face like flint, we said last week, to get to this place in Jerusalem. Now, the rest of Mark is going to be Jesus in and around Jerusalem. He's in his final leg of his ministry on earth. 
So let, it, let me set us up some context here. At the beginning of Christ's ministry, um, he was also in a temple. We see in Luke 4, you don't have to turn there, just one verse. He stands up in the temple and reads this piece out of Isaiah. He says this, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, and to recover the sight of the blind, to set liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And none of this is just a metaphor or Jesus just talking. When he talks about things like recovering sight of the blind, if you were here with us last week, that literally happened. Bartimaeus comes up to him, and Jesus heals his sight like that. Jesus, at the end of this, when he reads this text, he says, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your healing. Basically, Jesus is saying, I am the fulfillment of all of this. And this idea of fulfillment is very important to us because Jesus not only proclaims the good news of the kingdom, he is the good news of the kingdom. Jesus is then purposefully, intentionally fulfilling all of these things in Scripture we hear. I'll come back to Mark in just a second. At the end of Luke, after the resurrection, he's chatting with a few people and he says this to them. Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted, Jesus interpreted to them in all the Scriptures the things concerning himself. And then Jesus said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the scriptures and in the Psalms must be fulfilled. In other words, he's saying this, all the law, all the prophets, all the Psalms, basically all scripture, in a sense, is about me. So when we read our Bibles, we have to keep this in mind that when we read the scripture, it's not mainly about how to live a good life. It's not mainly about rules and regulations and restrictions and things not to do. It is not mainly about even a pathway of how to get to heaven. The scriptures are about the glory of God revealed in Jesus to the world. That's what the whole of the Bible is about. So this idea of fulfillment in Jesus really matters. Now, this does not mean that every tiny little word in Scripture is going to directly point to Jesus. I just read in my personal Bible reading time this week, because I'm just kind of reading through parts, that there was a verse that said, and everyone took his raisin cake and went home. You know, and, and, and you know, great, what am I, how am I supposed to find Jesus in that? And, you know, some people are, almost get silly about that. You know, the raisins represent Jesus. I'm like, no, it's probably just raisins. Um, so not every tiny little particular piece, but generally, broadly, all of the scripture is pointing us to the glory of God. So when we look at creation, we're seeing God's love of beauty and order and abundance. We see in the fall, then, that we're to look to one who is righteous to save. We see in all the law, God's call for holiness, and that holiness would be found in Jesus. We see then in, in the times of the judges and the kings, the need for a just judge and a greater King. And then we see in the time of the prophets this call to repentance that we would really turn to God through Jesus. All of this 
is pointing to God and is fulfilled in Christ. Now, there's some framework, some context. Particularly, as we're here in certain parts of Scripture, some are more explicit about that pointing to Jesus than others. So, as Jesus is fulfilling this part in the triumphal entry, he's specifically calling us back to the Old Testament. So the people in the Old Testament are waiting for many years, kind of leaning forward, waiting for this coming Messiah. And sometimes the writers explicitly talk about him. This is what Zechariah says, just a single verse here in chapter 9. Zechariah 9, 9, the prophet says this. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem, behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Here there is this great and coming king who's going to be humble, riding on a donkey. And so Jesus now, as he's coming into Jerusalem on this final leg of his ministry, says, go get me a donkey. And he gives them specific instructions about this so that he can intentionally fulfill this prophecy. And it's, they find it exactly as Jesus says. And, and Jesus rides then into Jerusalem basically saying, I am this Messiah, this king who was to come. And they understood part of this, not all of it, but some of it. You'll see at the end the things that the people are shouting out in verse 9. They're saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, essentially the one who comes with the authority of God. Blessed is the coming of our father David, that the coming of the kingdom of David is the fulfillment then of a, a promise. And at the end here, they're, they're crying out the word Hosanna, which means save us. And not just save us, but Hosanna in the highest. Save us in the biggest way possible. So it's not just that Jesus would save them from the Romans or political oppression, but that he would save them from the power of sin and death. That's what Jesus does. Now, this event, if you've been with us or if you've read through Mark before, feels a little strange if we pause and think about it. Here's why. Because as we read it, and we're talking, there's hubbub and fuss. People are waving branches around and crying out. There's, they, put, they put their coat on the ground. I always wonder what happened afterward when he rode over it. Do you pick, uh, you know, how does that work? You pick it up and go, ah, my coat really got stepped on. But there's all this fanfare. It feels like a parade, doesn't it? There's people even before him crying out, Hosanna, and then he comes, and then there's people after him crying out. And this is different than the Jesus that we've seen in the rest of Mark in this sense. That as we read Mark, we might get the impression that Jesus is amazing, but he certainly is not flashy. He's not like one of those magicians that's got the cape and he's waving it around. You know, he's not a flashy person. In fact, he's the opposite of flashy. In fact, for much of his ministry, he seems to be putting on the brakes on some things. Even not long ago, in chapters 8 and 9, he's, when people are trying to proclaim his name, he quiets them. He shushes them and says, don't tell people about me, which is very bizarre. And he says he doesn't want his identity to spread in chapter 9, verse 30. And so some then have said... Uh, in what they call the messianic secret or the Markan secret, that Jesus did not think he was the Messiah. 
that Jesus somehow did not think he was the Christ, and the disciples later then put that into the text. But that's not what Mark tells us. That's not what Jesus tells us. That's not what the other gospel writers tell us. What's happening here before, as Jesus shushes them and he says, the time is not yet come. But now here we are, and the time is here. And so there's a parade, a big fanfare about it as he comes into Jerusalem to fulfill all things. Now, Jesus then is coming in this parade into Jerusalem. He's being revealed as a king. He's coming on this colt, according to the prophet uh, Zechariah. He's got the fireworks of all the fanfare. There's the, the cloaks being put on the donkey, the cloaks being put on the ground. People are waving palm branches and going before, crying out Hosanna, going after it, crying out Hosanna. And things seem great. We get the sense that everything's finally going to be okay. And it will be okay, but... We know that this road into Jerusalem is going to take a very sharp left turn. That this road of the king is going to lead him to death. And in that sense, things are not okay. And Jesus knows this. We get this sense of, the, I mean, he says, he talks about this cult, go in, you'll find a cult. So he's aware of this. He's also aware that death is in store for him. He's just said that in chapter 10, verse 33, that he's come to Jerusalem specifically to die. He says, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be condemned. I'm going to be flogged. I'm going to be spat upon, and I will be killed. Jesus knows the hardship that is in front of him. And we should not think that because Jesus knows it, and because he's determined to face it, that he's got steel nerves or is unaffected by it. Here's why. We know that the scripture teaches that God, that Jesus is fully God and fully man, 100% God and 100% man. So Jesus is not like Hercules. You know, I like Hercules and the movies and all that. Hercules, Hercules, all of those sorts of things. But Hercules, this sort of imaginary figure, was what they called a demigod. Half man, half God. Jesus is different than that. Jesus is all God, never created, eternally existing. And at the same time, he is fully man. Sometimes we think that because he's both, that some of these things would have been easier for him. Ah, but Jesus is God, right? And he is. But because he's fully man, knowing that he's going to face death soon, it would have caused him to shiver. To, in some sense, if we could say it, to be, to be afraid. You hear sometimes people say, oh, I don't fear death. And whenever I hear that, I always wonder, have you thought about it? Because death is frightening. Even if we have confidence of what's on the other side, it still can make us shiver. So as Jesus knows, as he's walking into Jerusalem on this red carpet of cloaks and palm branches, this very carpet for him is death row. And the question then for him and then for us as well is this. Here's our question. 
How can Jesus have strength to face what is coming? How can Jesus have strength to face what is coming because all the pomp and circumstance will not last very long? As we look for the answer to this, we can look in the text, the people that are crying out these things, shouting Hosanna and such, they're not just randomly shouting out things. So they don't see this guy coming in and go, you look great. Nice shoes. You know, they're not just shouting out whatever comes to mind. Have you ever wondered why they seem to be shouting out the same things? It's because this time was Passover. It was a special holiday, kind of like Christmas for us, and they had their traditions around that particular holiday. So during Passover, they would sing what are called the Hallel Psalms. Hallel being, you know, you recognize that word from the word hallelujah, the praise psalms. These were psalms 113 to 118, and they would sing them. It's sort of like the songs that we sing around Christmas time. So we all know, like, well, now I can't think of a Christmas song. You know, Christmas songs. We all know them. And what's one? Silent Night. And we all know it, right? You might not know all the verses, but you at least know one. So they would have known all of these psalms, these six from the end of the book of Psalms. And this section specifically, if you have a cross-reference in your Bible, is from the last one. It's specifically from Psalm 118. In fact, we'll see Psalm 118 pop up a number of times in the coming weeks. Uh, Let's turn and look at it, because I think this will help us answer the question. Psalm 118 here. You'll recognize these words. Psalm 118, beginning in verse 25, save us, or the Hebrew there is Hosanna, uh, we pray, O Lord, O Lord, we pray, give us success, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's what they were singing, that's what they were shouting out to Jesus, it's coming directly from the Psalms. And so as Jesus is walking then into Jerusalem, he's hearing the words of Scripture He's being reminded of these things that are really true. And so we also want to hear what, is, what would have been on their mind and what might have been on Jesus' mind as well. I'll just highlight a few verses here in Psalm 118. You can see in verses 5 and 6, let me read this. Psalm 118, starting in verse 5, the psalmist writes this, Out of my distress I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Now, as I read that, that last line especially, what can man do to me, my first thought is, well, plenty. Man can do a lot of things to me, a lot of really bad things. They can flog, spit, and kill, in Jesus' example, or a lot of really horrible things. And so we know that as a Christian, it's not that we're exempt from hurt, or that we're exempt from pain, but when we're saying, what can man do to me, what we mean is that even hurt, even hardship, even heartache is producing in the life of a Christian something that is much deeper and much more valuable. That it grows us in righteousness, in patience, in trusting the Lord. What can man do to me when man steals from me or cheats me out of things because ultimately that will bring me to hope in God. 
What can man do to me when man lies about me, slanders me, and says things about me that just aren't true? Because ultimately that will bring me to cry out to God. And then, what can man do to me if he even kills me? Because ultimately this will bring us to life in God. That's what the psalmist is talking about when he gets to verse 17. He writes this. I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. Now let me say up front, the discipline does not mean it's a bad thing. Discipline is a good thing. It's a way that brings us training when the psalmist in verse 17 says, I shall not die, you wonder, how can he say that? Because Jesus died. I mean, everybody dies. No one's exempt from that. When he says, how I shall not die, how can he say something like this? You've heard the phrase, what doesn't kill me makes me stronger. You know, that's not from the Bible, but people say it, and there's some truth in it. What doesn't kill me makes me stronger. Well, for the Christian who lives in Jesus, even what kills me makes me stronger. Because while death is an enemy and in some sense should make us shiver, death is the means by which God has given a gateway to eternal life through the power of the resurrection of Jesus. So the psalmist can really say, I've not been given over to death, Death does not hold me. Death does not control me. I am not under death's power. It's really true then for the Christian, I shall live. These are the sorts of things that might have been on Christ's mind as people are calling out bits of Psalm 118. Now, we know this is true. Okay, you might go, okay, Nathan, I'm on board. I, I know it's true what can man do to me on some level. I know it's true that I'm not going to be given over to death, but I shall live. But listen, Nathan, I still struggle to hold on to this sometimes. I, how can I be sustained? How can I really find a rock underneath my feet when all of this feels wavery because the red carpet eventually wears out? It runs to an end, and then what do I do? So as Jesus, we're addressing this question for Jesus and also for us, how can Christ have strength to face what comes? I think the real answer is in verse 1 here of Psalm 118. The psalmist writes, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. We know that the Lord is good, and here, the expression of his goodness is his steadfast love. Maybe your Bible that you're reading out of translates it love, or loving kindness, or mercy. The Hebrew word here, translated in my Bible, steadfast love, is chesed. Got the phlegm in there. I learned that from Eliza. She really knows how to give a good, a, a good gurgle. But chesed, and this chesed is central to the nature of God. There's a lot of things that are central to the nature of God. God is also holy. It's the reason why he must deal with sin through the sacrifice of Jesus. But chesed, or the loving kindness, 
is so central to God that he puts it in his own description of himself. So when the Lord appears to Moses years ago, back in Exodus chapter 34, the Lord says this about himself. He says, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in chesed, or abounding in steadfast love and compassion. Uh, what we mean then by chesed is this. Chesed is the Lord's enduring, tender kindness toward ones who are in serious need. Let me say that again. Chesed is the Lord's enduring, tender kindness toward one in serious need. And it's not just that God has chesed, you can see in verse 1, it says, uh, he's about, or he says in his description of himself, he's abounding in chesed, abounding in steadfast love. So we should cherish this. It's really an anchor for us because we know that we're all in serious need. This, is a, this chesed is a really big deal for the psalmist. You see it in verse 1. I'll read, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he's good. His steadfast love, his chesed, endures forever. And then let all Israel say his steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say his steadfast love endures forever. And let all those who fear the Lord say his steadfast love endures forever. Do you hear how important it is? It's so important that they even wrap around at the end. Verse 29 as the psalm ends. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he's good, for his steadfast love endures forever. The psalmist repeats it, puts the steadfast love at the beginning, and clamps it at the end so that we're sandwiched in between. And that's really a good place to be. Back when I was in college, I remember going on a uh, camping trip with some of my buddies to Arkansas. And there are way more caves in Arkansas than I knew just like ones here, sort of Mark Twain style, and you kind of wander in them without realizing exactly what you're doing. And we did that once. We said, hey, look at this, and we climbed in and kept climbing in, and it kept climbing in, and it got darker. So there's four of us then climbing through this cave, and you know where I want to be in that line? As we started, it started to get smaller and smaller, and now we're climbing on our knees through this cave, and it's completely dark. I want to be in the middle. I do not want to be first because that guy might just, who knows what's in that cave. I don't want to be in the front. I also don't want to be in the back because if a bear's coming, I want him to eat that guy and then, I, and then I'll be fine. Maybe the bear will be full. You know, I, it was scary. I touched a bat. Um, but at least I want to be in the middle because that's the safest place to be. And here, the psalmist says we are sandwiched right in the middle of God's chesed, of God's steadfast love. And that makes all the difference for us. It's not just that God's chesed is all around us. It says his steadfast love endures forever. It's on both sides, and it will be that way throughout all eternity. Literally, the word is to the end we're always going to be, a Christian will always be sandwiched in the steadfast love of God. And that, if we really know that, will be our comfort. 
It will be our rest. It will be our hope. It's good to know this because if we're in a situation like Jesus, he's riding on this colt into Jerusalem on this red carpet of cloaks. And then that day ends and the sun begins to go down. You can see it in verse 11. He he entered Jerusalem and he went into the temple. It says Christ looked around at everything. We'll get to talk next week about what he saw there and why that mattered. But he looks around at the temple and then it says, and it was late. So he went out to Bethany. So I've been on this big parade and everything was great. But now the day is ending and night is coming. But with Psalm 119 and the the steadfast love of God on his mind, Jesus then can go into Bethany that night and lay down to sleep. And instead of when he lays down with his head on the pillow, having his mind circle with worries and fears, doubt, unrest, and anxiety about all that is coming before him, knowing what faithfulness will call of him, knowing that death for him is on the horizon, Jesus then can really rest because he knows that the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. Would you pray with me? Hmm. Our God, we know that you are a God who is steadfast. That as we experience seasons of life that are more like parades and seasons of life that are more like the darkness of night, that you still remain true and steadfast. That's a comfort for us as we come to you for rest, for hope. And when we're facing the hard things of life that we can turn to you, Lord, would you make your steadfast love known to us? Would you sink it deeply in our hearts so that we might rest in you? We ask these things in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen.